here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. We're kicking off today's episode with a special announcement. We're beyond excited to announce the first ever The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat that will be run from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the 29th and 30th of January 2022. Who says Januarys have to be dreary and shitty? Not us. So for those 12 hours, we have a jam-packed, amazing schedule, including an hour-long discussion with award-winning number one New York Times bestselling author and publishing phenomenon, Britt Bennett, who is the author of The Vanishing Half and The Mothers, about her journey to publication and her advice for a 
emerging writers. We also have a ton of talks on craft and the business side of writing presented by myself, Carly Waters and Cece Lira. We will also have world-renowned story expert Lisa Cron, author of Story Genius and Wired for Story. We'll also have Courtney Mom, who's the author of the brilliant Before and After the Book Deal, as well as Valerie Francis, who is an accredited editor when it comes to the Story Grid method. Uh, we'll also have Sally Kim, who is the SVP and publisher of Putnam. She's a big time editor who's edited novels like The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr., which was recently longlisted for the National Book Award, as well as Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin, The Gunkle by podcast favorite Stephen Rowley, and Girls Like Us by Christina Elger. And then there's a ton of other things we'll be doing, like breakaway sessions where you can meet other writers or pick our brains with burning questions that you have. You get to speak to all of the presenters after their sessions in Q&As. We have a ton of prizes we'll be giving away and a lot of really exciting content. So if you're interested, please go to my website, biancamaray.com. Go to the page that has courses and retreats and services and you'll find more information there as well as details about costing and a link to book. We are really, really looking forward to seeing you at this amazing upcoming event. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. We're going to start today's segment by Leopard Crawling Right In. Carly, can you read us the first query letter? Dear Ms. Bianca Murray, thank you for considering my query and first pages for your Books with Hook segment on your awesome podcast. I have found it so helpful listening to recent episodes and I would love to be featured on the podcast. I believe my debut novel, Huntress, may be a good fit for the segment. In this YA dark fantasy, Fair Archeron meets a quiet place in an action-packed adventure of 80,000 words. It is a standalone novel filled with bloodthirsty monsters, a romance under pressure, and a cynical heroine with nothing to lose. The night holds many things, the fear of its mystery, monsters shaped by our wildest imaginations, and the promise of day waiting just beyond its obscure edges. But for Arya, the night is eternal, and the darkness never ceases because her world is shrouded in night until the curse is lifted from the realm. She is a runner of West Mirth, a mountain that lies in the corner of the map, and she's trained for the past 18 years to become a guardian, a chosen runner for her queen to deliver information between the lower kingdoms. Her only desire from this title, however, is to finally leave her granite shelter she is forced to train under until chosen and see the world for the first time, no matter how many vampires currently roam the decayed earth in search of a living body to sink their teeth into. But the immortal night demons are nothing compared to the dark secrets she learns as her first official run as guardian, and she discovers her queen is just as much of a prisoner as she is. Azriel is a watcher, a winged defender of mankind created by the dead gods themselves, and his sole duty is to keep the centuries-old demon entrapped in her mountain to protect the realm from falling to her completely. But when he meets Arya, he realizes this is the girl they've been waiting for, the huntress who is blessed to destroy the queen once and for all. Arya is literally swept away in an adventure she never knew she wanted, given a calling that marks her for death and faced with a decision that puts the very realm in the palm of her scarred hands. But claiming her destiny may be more dangerous than anything the night might hold, and bringing back the dawn might doom them all. I am a registered nurse specializing in hospice and the end-of-life care. I use my time and experience in the field to express the theme of living every day to the fullest in hopes I can touch young readers and inspire them to live wholeheartedly and boldly. I have attached the first five pages of my manuscript below. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I look forward to hopefully hearing from you soon. Kind regards, 
Alexis Menard. Awesome. Carly, thank you. Cece, what were your thoughts on the query letter? All right, let's break this down into the three parts of a query letter. The introduction was excellent. I know the title. I know the genre. I have comps. I understand, you know, sort of like the, the things that this book is going to cover. Bloodthirsty monsters, romance under pressure, a cynical heroine. I know the word count. I always get curious when someone tells me that their heroine has nothing to lose because I'm always like, okay, so what's at stake then? But at the same time, people push to the brink can sometimes work really well. So it's it's not a no-no by any means. It's just something that I always keep an eye out for because it, it's high risk, high reward. The plot paragraphs. I do think it's quite wordy. The first paragraph... The one that starts with the night holds many things. I think, I think like 90% of that is essentially set up of the world. We don't need the first sentence. The second sentence can really just all be about the fact that it's always dark and it's, um, and there's a curse. We don't need to know all of this emotional setup. All we need to know really is this is the main character. This is what she wants. And this is the journey she's going to go. So I do think that she should trim this down, the, the author. Specifically, in terms of specific feedback that I can give you, the only plot point there in that paragraph is the fact that she discovers her queen is just as much of a prisoner as she is. And by plot point, I mean the thing that comes after the setup. And I don't really know what that means that the queen is just as much of a prisoner, but it's okay because it's intriguing. And then the second plot paragraph, I understand that we're going to deal with the trope of the chosen one, which is super popular and can work really well if you put an original twist in it. I did, however, think there was a slight contradiction because there's a line that says, Arya is literally swept away on an adventure she never knew she wanted. But then the previous paragraph told me that her only desire from this title is to leave the Granite Shelter and see the world for the first time. I mean, given that it's a scary world out there, I I kind of think she does want the adventure. So I don't know if the contradiction's intentional, but it did give me pause. And my big, big question in terms of, of the plot paragraphs that was unanswered and did give me a little bit of, did, did make me feel a little confused was, is this dual POV? Because we get who Asriel is and we get who Arya is, but we don't get anything on Asriel's character arc. So if it is dual POV, then I think we need, you know, one paragraph on her character arc, one paragraph on his, and make sure that those paragraphs explain how they they come together. And I thought that the last paragraph was was super adorable. So I really enjoyed that. Great, Cece, thank you. Carly, what was your take on it? I echo a lot of the same sentiments. The first thing that caused me pause was the title because there is a popular novel, a Kate Quinn novel called The Huntress. So even though it's a different category, um, I might just, you know, second guess whether this is the right title for this. Overall, there's quite a balance here between, you know, a really lyrical and voicey pitch while it is quite jam-packed with a lot of content. So, I mean, I found the first sentence really beautiful. You know, the night holds many things for its fear of mysteries. You know, that that whole section I thought was really, really beautiful. And it also told us a lot about the world, which was great, right? It's not just a voicey line just to be voicey, which I thought um, I thought was really well done. 
I, I always feel a little bit challenged by dual POV or potentially dual POV novels because it's not actually told to us whether this is dual POV or, you know, what the setup is. But we do have two characters that this is focusing on because the Azrael character is mentioned really, really quickly. And I almost wonder if we even need Azrael because just for the sake of the query, right, just to kind of keep this query moving as quickly as possible. So I'm kind of just wondering if he's even necessary, obviously for the book, but the pitch is different than the book, right? The pitch's job is to hook us. And the pitch's job is to be as clear as possible. So I would probably combine those two middle paragraphs, potentially cut out Asriel, um, and just really try to explain to us why we need to follow this character through her journey. It seems really interesting to me. I, I like the, I, I think the quiet place comp is really interesting for this. You know, obviously that was about noise and this is about light, but I think there's a lot of really interesting similarities there. So yeah, so yeah, I feel like this might be a case of maybe we just got to rewrite it because it's not, you know, exactly doing everything we want it to do, but it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means, you know, we just have to figure out a way to be as clear as possible. And I just wanted to comment as well on the last paragraph, um, the author bio paragraph, you know, hospice and end of life care is such an emotional and, and incredible job. And I'm just really glad that you have writing as an outlet to kind of balance out all of those, those big things going on in your life. So um, well done, you. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece, what did you think of those opening pages? Can you give us a bit of an understanding of what's in them before you give your critique? Yes, let's do this. So we get a little bit of inner life where the protagonist is telling us that there are three rules in the world she lives in. Be quick, be quiet, and be careful. She's sitting blindfolded, and we know that she's done this before, for the past 10 years, in fact, all through her training. Eventually, she rises to her feet, and we know that the test is going to begin. An instant later, um, we see her hand flying to the side of her face because she grabs the tail end of a very, very real, very lethal arrow. And again, remember, this person is blindfolded. And this keeps happening. The test consists of many attacks in the darkness, where she has to use her senses, her training to anticipate threats and stop these threats. And if she does really well, and at the end, she is talking to the instructor, and the instructor tells her, don't get overconfident. Um, each test will be more difficult than the last. And then she asks, you know, when will the next test be? And the instructor tells her that is for us to know and for you to wonder. <laughs> and at the end, the instructor tells her, you will no doubt be chosen soon if skill has anything to do with it. And then she smiles because she's really happy that she's chosen. Okay, so that is basically what the scene covers. In terms of my thoughts, I think the rules need to be more specific. Either cut the rules, like don't start with the with the rules or like make them really, really specific because be quick, be quiet and be careful. They're very generic rules, you know? I wonder also as I read this, if it wouldn't be more effective in the present tense. I think there's a tension and an immediacy here that would benefit from, from the present tense. I also, I was a little confused in terms of character development. Um, the protagonist does mention, as it's told in the first person, that she absorbs these rules, right? And forgets any personal desire she once entertained. The foolish child was replaced with a stone cold woman. That is the line. Her juvenile dreams faded into something more rational. It's almost like the same thing is being told to us over and over again, which I don't think we need. I think you can trust your reader to understand the first time. But also, I was a little just, you know, confused because if she was sold to this mountain as a baby and we, we read that she was, how did she once have dreams? 
You know, like how was she hopeful before? The thing about characters who exist in a world that's totally different from ours is, do they remember the before times, assuming there is a such a thing as a before? And if they do, then yes, they are probably really different people now. I mean, not that we live in a dystopian world, but think about all of us listening to this podcast right now. Um, we all remember the before times before COVID. And so I was confused about what her state of mind was. I didn't quite understand how she got there, but maybe if I had kept on reading, maybe if I had more than five pages, that would have been explained to me. There were some really great lines. The thick fabric in front of my eyes left nothing to the imagination, only a searing blackness that heightened the only senses that mattered. Really liked that. Really liked other lines too that I kept on highlighting. I did think that there should be a little bit more tension since the test is about to begin. She is calm almost, or at least I'm not getting her emotion. It's not bubbling to the surface as I would want it to. And it's an interesting scene, right? Like she's she's literally grabbing arrows that are being flung in her direction. I loved the line, I was not an assassin, I was a runner. That was a great line. I did think that the sentence where she says, there would be more to train, more to work on, and more hurdles to jump before I would feel the fresh air against my face. That's her motivation, right? Like she wants to get out. We know this because of the query letter. I think amp this up. I think amp it up. Um, that emotion needs to be introduced and built in a way that makes us feel it with her as opposed to just drop there with one line. I also think that the dialogue was a little info dumpy. Like she was asking when the next test would be and she knows that the instructor won't tell her, right? Like this is the world full of rules. So either she was asking on purpose to see if she could get away with it. And in that case, I want the inner life to tell me that. I don't know, maybe she's being strategic for some reason or she wouldn't ask because she's not, she's not unintelligent. And I don't know if the instructor should tell her that if skill has anything to do with it, she'll be the chosen one. Doesn't that kind of remove the reveal later on. You know, the whole thing about the chosen one is that you're unsure. And sure, you know, based on the trope that she will be the chosen one, just like, you know, on rom-coms that they'll end up together. But I don't think they have to say it. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Carly, what'd you think? I, I found this, um, this balance between the like meditative state of like just being juxtaposed with this like catching arrows out of the air a little I don't know a little unbalanced somehow you know I don't as you guys know you know fantasy isn't one of my primary care uh, categories that I work on but I just I've watched the movie um, Ray and the Dragon a number of times because I have kids and we tend to watch movies over and over and over and so I would suggest that this person hasn't watched that movie yet so basically what happens if you haven't seen the movie yet is there's this uh, female girl we're not sure how old she is maybe like eight eight nine ten um, and she is kind of making her way immediately to having this very kind of like action-packed moment. And we don't know in that moment if she is actually fighting a real fight or whether she's being tested, whether this is a test fight. And I love that opening because if you haven't seen the movie, right away we find out afterwards, again, this is all in the first like minute and a half that we find out that that wasn't a real fight. It was her dad like testing her, right? And so we learn about the world, we learn about their goals, we learn about their motivations, like, I just think that movie is an extraordinary, extraordinary example of how to have an action-packed opening while world, world building at the same time. So I, I just think, as I said, I, I think that movie does such a great job and, and it, with all of the world building. So I would highly recommend checking that one out. And that way you can kind of figure out that balance between action and meditation. 
because logically that makes sense. But we're reading a book, we're trying to be entertained, right? So I think we just have to figure out that balance in a way that's a little bit more concrete, in a way that can um, be a little bit more compelling for the reader. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Uh, would you like to, Cece, would you like to read our second query letter? Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, I noticed Ms. Waters' interest in smart women's millennial fiction that explores feminism and that might also include casual disability representation. Also, I saw that Ms. Lyra is interested in stories that explore relationships between mothers and daughters and those with a feminist angle. I'm delighted to query you with What Would Gwen Do? A 93,000 word work of commercial women's fiction with a strong romance arc and quirky family dynamics. The story features my neurodiverse ADHD and anxiety Jewish millennial protagonist as she struggles with adulting challenges while confronting family, romantic, mental health, and cultural pressures with humor. This might appeal to fans of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, The Hating Game, and Loathe at First Sight, and hopefully to you as well. As Ari's 30th birthday approaches, her anxiety skyrockets thanks to intense career pressure and her family's meddling in her personal life. Still, she spurns her mother's advice and Nienta fix-ups, opting instead to pop Zoloft, cling to 90s music playlists for inspo, and fixate on megastar Gwen Stefani for a roadmap to secure a promotion at the music tech startup where she works, as well as to jumpstart her love life. Her competition at work, Brooks, is a Stanford-educated Matthew McConaughey lookalike who charms everyone, including her, unfortunately, with his nerdy Southernisms. But when a concert corporation acquires her employer, all promotions are put on hold and Ari and Brooks inherit new bosses, one Neanderthal and one backstabbing bombshell who swipes right on Brooks and wants to fire Ari. Channeling Gwen, Ari pivots and secretly finds an angel investor to help fund her own startup. The catch? She must keep her current job until her stock options vest, and she can co-fund a new company. Now Ari's future is on the line, her parents are in her face, and she's losing the only man with whom she's ever connected. Following her, what would Gwen do logic hasn't panned out as she'd hoped, which leaves her facing with the most difficult question of all, what should Ari do? An early AOL employee, I experienced the sometimes chauvinistic world of tech. The sexism still remains, i.e. an op-ed in the New York Times on July 4th, 2021. My freelance essays and articles have been published in the Washington Post, AOL Digital Cities, and other places. I'm a member of WFWA and blogged for over a decade on music, parenting, and social issues. In addition, I've had a short story published in the anthology Electric Race, still more fiction by Washington area women. Finally, I recently completed an intensive year-long novel writing workshop. The first five pages follow. Happy to provide more upon your request. Thanks again for your kind consideration. Stay well. Best share. Great. Thanks so much, Cece. Carly, what was your take on the query letter? 
I thought the first paragraph was great. I really liked the, you know, this might appeal to fans of X, Y, and Z, and hopefully to you as well. I thought that was a really, really adorable opener, really sweet and, and earnest. And I liked that. Now, regarding the plot, firstly, let me talk big picture. So the hook is buried in here and the hook is buried deep. <laughs> to me, the hook is she's pivoting to start her own company <laughs> and gets an angel investor. Like to me, that is the hook, right? All of this other stuff is superfluous to this actual major event that's happening in her life. So I I feel like we need to pull that hook up even into that first paragraph. You know, woman with anxiety and ADHD, you know, has a complicated life and wants to fund her own startup, XYZ, obviously write that better. But you know, to me, that's the hook, right? Everything else is just padding, to be honest with you, because I also feel like we're not getting at a specific incident in terms of what the inciting incident is. Because if the inciting incident is the family, we need the family story. If the inciting incident is the work stuff, like these bosses, then I think we just have to reverse these two paragraphs even, or again, probably just rewrite this whole middle. But I think focusing on that second paragraph is much more important than the first body paragraph, because I'm just not clear on what the author thinks that their hook is potentially, or they're just not focusing their query on the hook. And I think in the way that I think um, would be really important. The other thing that I think needs a little bit of focus is this line about she's losing the only man with whom she's ever connected and it doesn't tell us who that man is are we to assume that it's brooks or are we to assume it's her dad like who is this man you know that she's connected with in terms of like who is this person in her life could be anybody right you know what kind of connection are we talking about so i think i'd like to be a little bit more clear on that considering this is kind of pitched as a strong romance arc the query isn't focusing on romance at all but for women's fiction i love that we're focusing on a really exciting kind of like business focus women's fiction I think I think that is also the great hook and I think that's why we have to pull that startup tech stuff out um, to really tease out what, what's the most important thing there I f also feel like this Neanderthal and backstabbing bombshell are very like caricature type of characters described here I don't know if there's a better way to say that but I feel like yeah it just seems a little bit caricature-esque for me um, but the author bio paragraph was great. And, and I think there's a ton, ton to work with here. It's just figuring out what we want our hook to be. And Carly, thank you. Cece, what was your take on it? I definitely agree. And I would add to that, that, you know, your background as, as an early AOL employee means that there will be so much authenticity in the story. I think that, that that is definitely the hook. That's definitely the thing that would be most interesting to me as a reader. And I would just, yeah, absolutely. Bring that to the surface. Make sure that that is very clear in your query letter. Bring it up to the very first paragraph, like Carly said, because it's it's something that not that many women see themselves represented in books out there, right? Like, and you will be giving the world that if if your book does get published. So so that's awesome. I also had questions about like what her family meddling means exactly in terms of like where this comes together. Cause I do understand that the startup and you know the women in tech is is definitely a hook and definitely a big part of the story, but the author is also very intentional in telling us this is a romance. So how does her family meddling play into that? Like, is it specific with the romance? Is it about something else? Um, and having read the pages, I think we kind of get a little bit of, of a sense of that. But I do think it's important to make that clear in the query. I have been raving about this book and I'm going to continue raving, but Dial A for Aunties is such a great book. And it might be something that you want to read because it's a story where the family meddling is directly connected to both the romance that the main character 
has been the, the, the boy that she's been in love with for years. Okay. Like the historical romance, I guess you could call it, but also with the not quite romance that is connected to the inciting incident. So, and I mean, obviously we don't have a query letter for that, but I just think it's really important to show how things come together. And I don't quite understand how the family meddling comes together here. And I'm sure it does. So it's all about just bringing that to the surface. Wonderful, Cece. Thanks. Connie, could you give us a bit of an overview of those opening pages? So we are set in a scene with a party. Our character is at a party and they're kind of observing all of their families interacting. Um, We're trying to figure out maybe what the party is celebrating. We couldn't really, you know, get to that. But then we find that out that it is the sister uh, in an engagement and everybody is very happy about this engagement and it has nothing to do with our main character. She's, you know, observing her dad, talking to her dad. Dad, and that's kind of the, the crux of it. So, so my notes for this one are the observation opening, right? Whenever we have an observational opening, we're learning much more about everybody else and much less about the character. I think there is um, some some work to do in terms of this comparison game when we do have an obs- observational setting. We know that the dad is kind of sneaking away to put some food on his plate. And, you know, the the daughter's kind of like, it seems like the daughter is on his side. Um, so, yeah, I think there's just something we could do there. What does the mom have to say about her eating habits and things like that, if that's something that comes up? Or is it a control issue? But really what we're getting here, I think, is a really lovely father-daughter connection. But my main concern is really just that this is quite observational. So I would really just figure out a way to make this a bit more centering to our main character. So thanks, Carly. Cece, what was your take on it? My favorite part here was the humor. Like I was laughing at many of the lines, which I'm sure is intentional. So that's great. Like the fact that she mentioned that she's ending the life choices of her mom's cat and, you know, her dialogue with her dad, like, you know, because her dad's sneaking food and she, and he asks her not to tell on him. And she goes, who died and made me the food police? Or even her observations on Brooklyn. Um, she mentions how she remembers when Brooklyn was, wasn't swanky, right? And there's a line that says, Brooklyn was decidedly unswanky then and it was still hard to see it as anything but. So so it's definitely funny and I like that a lot. The part that felt weird to me is that this felt dated. It's almost like the scene was taking place in the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe, maybe even earlier. Just, it's small things like, well, I guess the big thing really is the fact that parents nowadays get that working in tech is a big deal. In fact, careers that used to be like the coveted careers, like being a doctor, being a lawyer, these aren't the careers that parents, like the helicopter parents would push onto their children anymore. And these parents don't seem to get that, which is strange. Is it intentional? And if so, I think that needs to be made really clear. Like my parents are the only parents in the world who don't get this. But I also don't see how they wouldn't, quite frankly, right? Like the world is run by tech companies. Everything we do, it touches like literally all aspects of our lives. So, and they would have, you know, so-and-so, the neighbor's kid who became a billionaire selling his internet startup or something like this. It feels very conservative and very dated. And so if that is intentional, then by all means, keep it. But if it's not, then that that was, that was rang strange to me. Um, that's like my big picture note. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right. I'm going to read the third query letter. 
Hi, Carly and Cece. It's such a pleasure to pitch you. I loved She Regrets Nothing, and I'm a frequent listener of the Tuesday Clubhouse chats. I hope you'll be interested in my manuscript, I Told My Therapist About You, a cross between good in bed and self-care. Completed 70,000 words. I Told My Therapist About You is the work of women's fiction about a young Jewish woman insistent on sticking to her life plans, despite all signs that it's aiding her unhappiness. Hannah Ziegler, 22, thinks her plans for a financially secure life are finally panning out. She's in a long-term relationship with her college boyfriend, Henry, and works as an assistant editor in Washington, D.C. But when she has the opportunity to work for the most influential editor since Anna Winter in The Big Apple, Hannah uproots her life, confident that Henry, who's been a little distant lately, will take the next step in their relationship and join her in New York at the end of the summer. As Hannah crashes on her friend's couch and uses Instagram to pretend like she's living her most glamorous life, despite racking up credit card debt, she becomes close to Nav, their third wheel from college. Over the course of the summer, Hannah tries to push away her growing emotional and sexual urges for Henry's best friend. With the help of her therapist, Hannah is forced to confront her own romantic expectations and the pains of deciding whether to shed the safety nets she's built for herself and step into the unknown. I told my therapist about you explores what happens when all your best laid plans get thrown out of a fourth floor walk-up window. I'm a New York City-based reporter who focuses on women, mental health, and technology. My writing can be found in Redacted. Prior to the pandemic, I spoke at women-focused events about budgeting for millennials and finding your place in the workplace as the co-founder of She Spends, a newsletter dedicated to helping women close the wage gap. My platform includes 4,700 Twitter followers and have a wide network of East Coast writers and editors who I believe would help with book promotion. I studied journalism and history at the University of Maryland. The first five pages of my manuscript are attached. I can be reached at Redacted. Thanks for your time, Amanda. Cece, would you like to tell us what you think of that query letter? So the first paragraph is doing a good job of telling me title, comps, word count. I did think that the good in bed comp was a little old, but you know, if this is the comp that you found, that's that's fine. Self-care isn't an old comp. I am mentioning this though, because I do have notes on the page, which have to do with good and bad. So it, it, this will make sense in a second. The plot paragraphs. My challenge here was believing that a 22-year-old would even feel this way, right? Like 22-year-olds in, in 2021 are Gen Z. I am not Gen Z myself, but I went back to school and was immersed in the classroom of, I don't even know, 100 Gen Zers. And for the first three days, they thought I was one of them. I'm very proud of this fact. They did not think I was, at the time, 34. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, she she's thinking of being financially secure and married, like, at 22? That's not realistic. Like, maybe she's super different from most Gen Zers, which is fine, but I think that has to be addressed, I, I definitely get her, you know, crashing on her friend's couch and using Instagram to pretend like she's living her most glamorous life. I, I can totally see that racking up credit card debt. I just don't understand. Like, it seems like the climax is very much like the book will explore what happens when your best laid plans get thrown off out of a fourth floor walk-up window, which is a cute line. But remember, 
that's called being 22. You know, you're living in a world where there's climate change and, and financial crisis and pandemics. And the world is really bad out there for people who are 22, for anyone really. But if you're 22, it's just depressing. So I don't understand how this, this person is like, oh yeah, I'm going to be financially secure. I don't get it. This, this was the part that was hard for me. I struggled with that. I also think that if, if the story is going to be centered around the love triangle, it feels like it is. I want to know what's unique about this love triangle. Um, I don't quite see it here, and I'm sure there's something. Bring that to the surface. Give me the unique hook about a love triangle. I really like love triangle stories, so I might be your reader. I just think we need a fresh angle to that. So, yeah, and I really like the last paragraph too. From Cece, thank you. Carly, what was your take? I was just kind of chuckling along with Cece talking about how bad the world is for 22-year-olds. Oh man, those poor 22-year-olds right now. I feel for you. I feel for everybody, as Cece said. But yeah, being young and, and today's world's really hard. So just coming back to the comps. So I stumbled, as Cece did. Um, good and bad, as Cece said, is older. And then self-care, I am lucky to call Lee Stein a friend of mine. And I have read this book and I adore this book. And so I'm trying to figure out what about self-care is the comp here. Because this book is very snarky and very self-aware. And I'm so I'm wondering if it's the self-awareness of, of self-care that we're trying to comp and, or we're trying to build towards a level of self-awareness. And if that's the case, if that's why it's the comp, then good and bad, it's probably not the comp. Number one, it's a bit older. And also that kind of modern Gen Z or millennial self-awareness and ironic commentary on women's lives um, in terms of like consumerism and beauty and all this other stuff, right? Like that's kind of what that book is about. So I think, yeah, I think the comps probably need a little bit of finessing. And one of the other things is I want to know what gets in her way. Because as Cece said, when you're 22, there's a lot of things that get in your way, right? And so I want to know what specifically for this book is getting in this character's way, whether it is, again, this is work or, you know, just again, just being 22. The other thing specifically that I had a note in this, in this query is a very, very small thing. But I think I, we're stumbling a little bit with the line and I think we're missing some punctuation here. Um, but when she has the opportunity to work for the most influential editor since Anna Wintour in the Big Apple, it sounds like Anna Wintour is only special because she's in the Big Apple. So I think we're just missing some punctuation or we just need to reword, um, realign some word choices there. But overall, I think it's a very strong query. I have a feeling I know who this person is and they're a longtime follower. So um, shout out to you. I'm pretty sure I know who you are. Wink, wink. And you did a really good job with this. So, um, so I think it's pretty strong. I think we just need to revisit the queries and just, I think you need to really spell out if this is kind of a self-awareness, cheeky, um, snarky thing. Great. Thanks, Carly. Cece, will you give us a bit of overview of those opening pages before you dive into them for us? Yes. So we have our protagonist, going to an appointment and we know it's a therapy appointment. We know that she's very uncomfortable about this. She's walking down the street and we know right away that she isn't local. She's in the city. She's in New York. She's insecure about the idea that other people can maybe tell that she's seeing a shrink for the first time. Those are her words. She's also a little concerned about potential muggers that will spot an out-of-towner. Also her words. She's thinking about how, you know, she wishes her parents could also give her an apartment, just like Amelia's parents. Amelia's her friend. She's talking about the advice her mom gave her throughout her life, which is to marry for money. 
She's talking about how Henry's trust fund will eventually take care of them when when he moves to the city. Henry, as you remember from the query letter, is her boyfriend. So eventually she arrives at the the building and she's very self-conscious about her appearance. She wants to look, you know, put together. She just tells the, the therapist, you know, why she's there. There's a deal with her friend Amelia that she has to go to four sessions and she's there to survive the first of these four sessions. Um, and she just tells the therapist, like, I'm hoping to gain a new perspective on myself because I'm in a new environment. So that's essentially what, what these pages are covering. Again, echoing my thoughts on the previous query, we, we actually just... Um, examined. I thought this felt dated. I don't know if it's me. Maybe I'm reading everything and I'm having 90s nostalgia or something. But this is a generation that has normalized therapy. Psychology, going to therapy is no longer the taboo that it once was. So the fact that she's super insecure about it, just it didn't feel quite true to me. And I understand that perhaps she is different, right? Like, and that's okay. But the comp good and bad and the fact that she feels not quite like a Gen Zer is is giving me pause and something that I think you should explore you the the writer who is listening perhaps you know something to to consider might be that all her friends don't understand her hang up with therapy or something right like maybe she can reference that specifically to show that that this is taking place in in the present day small things, but I would um, use a different font for the text message. We've chatted about this in the podcast before. I wonder, and I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, but she is coming across as super spoiled. Okay. Like she's mad at her parents for not having an apartment in New York. Like how many people get that? That's not very common, like an apartment where she can stay over. And she's also like counting on Henry's trust fund to, to, to pay for her bills. By the way, Henry's totally getting a prenup. Henry's not an idiot. Has she thought about this? She has to think about this. Like I, the, the author did a really good job of showing her financial anxiety. It's things like when she mentions the yoga class, she mentions the price of the yoga class and says it wasn't worth the X dollar yoga class. That is exactly how someone with financial anxiety would think about. And I like books that discuss financial anxiety because it is a very real, timely concern. But then she would also think about the prenup, right? Like she would also have all these these strategies in place. I don't know what the strategy would be, but maybe she's going to drug Henry to make him not sign the prenup. I don't know what she's going to do, but I just think that it, we need to really go there. If that if this is a theme with a character, the financial anxiety, go there. A book that does this really well is called Exciting Times. I never know how to pronounce the the, the author's first name. Naomi Stolen? I don't know. She's Irish and she's fabulous. And it is the best book I read in 2020. Number one book. I'm obsessed with that novel. The main character is a millennial, perhaps Gen Z, or she's really young, early 20s. And she has a lot of financial anxiety. And the author does it in a way that is perfect, perfect, perfect to the zeitgeist and to the generation. Um, so that might be a comp for you to take a look at. Oh, I had a question, but obviously the author can't answer. Is the story going to be told through the therapy sessions? Because that is a little concerning. Like it's a story within a story. And maybe it's not. Maybe this is just the opening scene. But since the title is I Told My Therapist About You, I I, I wondered. And I had like a lot of specific questions that were great. Things like, why did you have a deal with your friend Amelia? And, you know, why did you pick Henry to be your first husband? Because she she mentions how her mom said that she should marry three times in her life. Her mom has very strange advice, very strange life, life advice. So I, I thought that, you know, I, I had good questions at the end and I would be curious to, to understand more about this character's psyche. I just think you have to lean into whatever her quirks are and make it even more 
You know, like if it's financial anxiety, make it even more. If she's someone who's like, yes, I am going to marry for money and I'm going to be unapologetic about it. Make it, make it even more right now. It's almost like you're trying to make it like it's normal. Isn't the word, but like it's typical and like, it's not a big deal. And I think it should be. And again, exciting times is a novel that does this really, really well. The protagonist is unapologetic about how pragmatic she is when it comes to money. She's not a good person in the traditional sense of the word, uh, but she's an interesting, wonderfully, written person. So that's something I would take a look at. And Cece, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? Yeah, I'm going to continue on with the financial conversation. So a couple things. Talking about normalizing therapy. I don't know how much anybody else's therapist costs, but my therapist costs $140 an hour. So if this person is concerned about money, like going to therapy is a huge expense for some people. It's not covered by tons and tons and tons of um, health plans and things like that. So the fact that we don't learn until the end of the sample that the fact that she is even quote unquote going to therapy is because of this deal she has with Amelia, who is the the friend whose couch she's crashing on, to me is huge. Like I really feel like we're dancing around this issue about money in a way that doesn't really feel all that natural, one, to the setting, but also to the circumstances, right? So that's a little bit concerning to me. Where is this $140 coming from? And again, my therapist isn't even isn't even in Midtown Manhattan. So if your therapist is in Midtown, Manhattan, you could maybe double that price. So so those are some of my thoughts about the money stuff. I also felt like, and this isn't this author's fault by any means, is that this felt like it was written before COVID, you know, and it probably was. And the world is never going to be the same again, right? We know that. And there's just some things that aren't going to matter post COVID. And I know that a lot of novelists are grappling with this balance between, you know, what do you even talk about COVID or do you talk about this kind of gap in your life? Um, editors in general, in terms of the editors I'm talking to, we're just generally avoiding it. We're pretending kind of it never happened. We're like skipping forward. I do feel like in that sense, we still, we have to move forward mentally as well, which is, is a 22 year old who just went through COVID going to be worried about her Rebecca Minkoff shoes, or I don't remember what brand they are, but, um, but you know, it's, these are just things that I'm just not sure how sheltered this person is. And that's why I'm questioning the self-awareness. If the, if this novel is about self-awareness, such as the comp self-care discusses, uh, I just want to see this self-awareness because right now it's coming off as this character isn't able to evaluate their privilege and they aren't able to evaluate you know their status in life. And they're not able to reconcile that therapy costs hundreds of dollars, right? So maybe, you know, again, we only have five pages. Maybe she goes at the end of therapy to pay the bill and she doesn't realize how expensive therapy is. Or, you know, somebody else has to end up paying for therapy. I don't know all of these things. But these are the kind of um, wheels that were turning in my head as, as well as Cece's, obviously. I really like the first line. I always assumed I would have three husbands, but then Henry messed it up. Oh, I love that. I love that. I just think it's so, so adorable. And that's why I think that there is a bit of snark to this character. And I think there is a bit of self-awareness, but I don't feel like I really know this character. I don't really feel like I know who they are. Yeah. I don't, again, I, I think it's just a 22 year old, you know, in a novel in the year 2021 or 2022 or whatever this book comes out. I just don't think this is reflective of the demographic that it's kind of setting out to represent. 
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word the more writers we have signed up the better the matches will be we have received our first bit of wonderful news for an alumni of the podcast 
we want to give a shout out. Huck Beard has received representation. So congratulations, Huck. Huck had some lovely words to say. He said, I hope that you know that your kind-hearted advice is going out into the universe and planting flowers. So thank you so much, Huck. We are so thrilled for you. As we said, we can't wait to continue to celebrate you. Maybe someday down the line, you're going to get to be a guest author on our podcast as well. And and we'll see this come full circle. So anybody that does have good news to share, like Huck, please let us know. Another thing we wanted to say is that we received a submission this week that mentioned at the very end in a lovely and very kind way that the writer had already queried Carly before. And she understood if this disqualified her from being on books with hooks. She wasn't sure, and she mentioned that she understood if that were the case. We just want to make it clear to her and to everyone else that is not the case. If you have queried Carly or myself or anyone else at PS Literary, for that matter, it's okay to still send your submission to Books with Hooks if you would like our feedback. The purpose of the podcast is to offer feedback on query letters and first pages so that writers can position themselves and stand out in this really competitive market. We're here to offer support. We're here to offer advice. And absolutely, having queried us before would never, ever disqualify you. So please don't ever worry about that. Before we go to today's guest, there's just a reminder, CC has a course coming up on the 4th of November at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's called Writing Emotion, How to Weave Emotion into Your Story. Go to CC's Instagram page to find the link there to book for that course. And then before we go to today's guest, we just want to give a shout out to Writer's Bone, one of our podcast partners. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malkwee, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Today's guest grew up in both London and Los Angeles and worked at Sony Music before starting the clothing brand London Loves LA. She lives in London with her husband, James, and their dog, Rocky. The comeback is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Ella Berman. Ella, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan, so this is very cool. Well, we have a mutual admiration society because I absolutely (laughs) loved your book. Loved it, loved it, loved it. So it's wonderful to get to chat with you today. We're going to begin with a bit of a lightning round that I've been trying. So let's see how that goes. It's 15, 15 questions and you just kind of, you can give context or not. All right, here we go. Are you a plotter or a pantser? Pantser. Love it. Love my fellow pencils. <laughs> Do you write on computer or on longhand in notebooks? Computer. 
Do you like writing more in private or in public? Private. Okay, this question I really must review because during COVID, none of us are writing in. I know, true, but I've never been able to. (laughs) Wonderful. Do you write in silence or can you listen to music? Silence or music with no lyrics. Okay. Do you share your work while drafting or do you wait until the very end to show it to people? Wait until the end. Okay. What's your favorite point of view, first or third person? First always. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Do you prefer present or past tense? I write, I tend to write in present tense, but I, you know, I like them both, but yeah, I'd say present. Okay. Prologues are awesome or prologues are cheating? Awesome. (laughs) Team (laughs) prologue. Let's Yeah. Do you prefer drafting or do you prefer revising? I think revising. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was an evolution for me to get to that point. Are you Mm. a fan of adverbs and adjectives or do you try and cut them all out? I'm unfortunately a huge fan. I sometimes go for the double and I'm trying to cut them out. Listen, the double's still doable. It's when we start heading towards the triple that we have. The triple, okay. Although it's so, you know, this is something we always tell my creative writing students is try and pare that down, try and pare that down. And then I read a book like Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle, which was just so glorious and lush. And she sometimes uses three adjectives. And just yeah. part of her amazing style and it was just lovely so I mean some people uh, can make it some people can make it work I think you can do anything if you do it well <laughs> absolutely do you love or hate the copy editing process love it was honestly the most like illuminating experience getting that first that copy edited draft back I was in awe because it's such a different skill and it's something that I do not have. And I just honestly could not believe it. I loved it. And the attention to detail that it's they insane, yeah. bring to it. It's like, they'll tell you the moon phase is all wrong for the date that you were, that you write. Yeah. About. They'll be like, you said it's a full moon, but it wasn't. Exactly. Like, oh, sh- oh shit. Okay. It's incredible. And cause I write such quick first drafts or qu- such quick drafts, you know, I don't have the time to focus on all of that. So it's amazing. So what comes to you first, character or plot? character yeah I read in interviews you gave that uh, Grace came to you first and I'm so glad Mm. she did what do you prefer the three-act structure or do you prefer using more action beats in a structure like in Save the Cat it's instinctive how I write so I don't think I knowingly do any of these but it still might adhere to one of these but yeah neither knowingly Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like your work conforms a bit to save the cat. And if you're doing that instinctively, that's amazing because, you know, emerging writers struggle with that action beat list, even, you know, when they try and consciously to apply. <laughs> what do you prefer, writing dialogue or writing description? Dialogue. And are you a fan of backstory or do you try and avoid it at all costs? I like backstory. In the comeback, there's a lot of flashbacks that. I actually added in a like later drafts, but I think they've really helped kind of explain the characters in the present day. So yeah, definitely backstory. Right. We'll we'll come to that now. So I do want to mm. um I, I do want to focus on that. But just to give our listeners a bit of context in terms of the book that we're discussing today. So in the comeback. Grace Turner was one movie away from Hollywood's A-list. So no one understood why at the height of her career and on the eve of her first Golden Globe nomination, she disappeared. 
Now, one year later, Grace is back in Los Angeles and determined to reclaim her life on her own terms. So when Grace is asked to present a Lifetime Achievement Award to director Abel York, the man who controlled her every move for eight years, she knows there's only one way she'll be free of the secret that's already taken so much from her. Um, and the comeback is a powerful and provocative story of justice in the Me Too era, a true page turner about a young woman finding the strength and power of her voice. So we'll come back to the backstory thing shortly. I just want to give our listeners some context. So you started writing this book in February 2017, which was eight months before the New York Times Weinstein story broke. Can you take us through that process? What inspired it, etc.? I was coming off the back of, um, I'd written my first novel and it was a YA book and I hadn't got an agent for it. And I was gave myself a week or two to lick my wounds and just tell myself I was never going to write again. And then I just decided to kind of open myself up to the idea of writing something else. But it just felt very daunting sitting down and, you know, starting with an outline and writing something all the way through. So I kind of just started thinking about this character and this character came to me. And she came to me in her present state. So when the book opens, she's living in Anaheim with her parents and she's just completely in a state of arrested development. She's very flawed. She's kind of a bit caustic. She can't maintain a conversation with a family member without it like devolving into an argument. Um, and it was more for, for me and in the book, a matter of sort of unpacking what had happened to her or like unraveling. Um, so I wrote a few scenes with her in it and I didn't have any idea. I didn't sit down like, oh, I want to write a book about this or that she's going to be this. Um, it really did come very kind of organically. So I wrote a few random scenes, some of which made it into the final version of the book and some of which didn't even make it into the first draft. And I just got to know her really in like a quite a, like a gently, gently way, because I didn't want to scare myself into, you know, because I just sort of felt it a bit stung. And then from there, that's kind of how I wrote the whole book is just piecing bits together like a jigsaw going back and adding backstory when I needed it. And it kind of was the culmination of all my interests and everything I've studied and all my experiences. It, it makes complete sense retrospectively why I wrote this book, but I never sat down with the intention of like, I'm going to, you know, cover this subject. And in terms of the Hollywood side of things, I think it seems more prescient than it is perhaps just because there's been these rumors and there's been, you know, like whispers about the casting couch culture since its inception. So yeah, for me, I just wanted to write about something that we all think we know about. And I wanted to kind of give a peek behind the curtain. And I think my uh, experience in the music industry gave me like a bit more of an insight than um, I would have otherwise had. So when the stories, the allegations came out about Harvey Weinstein in that October, I kind of had a decision to make whether I should carry on as if, you know, like as I had been going without referencing this amazing movement that was starting or whether I sort of incorporate it into the book. But in the end, I landed on not not mentioning it just because I wanted to kind of like highlight the isolation that survivors feel of, you know, sexual assault or any kind of trauma like that and just how 
even though Hollywood has had this amazing reckoning, there are so many industries that haven't. So I decided to focus on just Grace as a human. And even though she lives in this reality, it was like seeming, you know, like a ton of privilege. She is actually like very vulnerable and, you know, very damaged ultimately and super isolated. Right. And I mean, even though Hollywood's had this big Me Too reckoning, I feel like that's really the tip of the iceberg. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how many stories were not told? Because, exactly. you know, when that happened, I think we expected it was like, well, now these guys are really going to get it. And honestly, it was quite pitiful. It almost felt, I'm not going to say anticlimactic, but I was expecting so much more for the fallout of that to be. And I don't think it was nearly as big as it should have been. So certainly showing her isolation. I feel like that was really an authentic decision to make because, you know, I don't feel like these women all really came together and now started this this whole revolution. You know, I, I feel like men are still getting away with these things exactly as they used to, you know? Yes, I agree. And the more powerful and the more successful they are, like the more they're going to get away with it. Yeah, it felt quite concentrated, didn't it? And as if everyone's like, okay, well, we've dealt with that now. And it's like, no, there is, you know, so much more than that going on in every industry particularly ones where we sort of glorify the myth of the male creative genius and like anything goes because, you know, they're making a lot of money for a lot of people. But yes, I'm relieved I made that decision and I made the decision to just focus on one woman's reckoning with her own past and trauma and feelings of shame and complicity. Yeah. And, you know, timing, I tell so many um, writers that feel like they haven't succeeded because they're not good enough writers, etc. And that isn't always the case. Sometimes you can be a really good writer, you can write an amazing story, but if your timing is off, then your timing is off. And I feel like you didn't have luck with your YA novel, but then you had luck in terms of the next novel because you were writing something at a time when that was something that was about to become a big discussion. So did that make it easier for you to pitch the novel to agents after you were done? I I think it did and it didn't. I think something that a lot of agents and editors said to me was they wanted more of an active revenge story from Grace. And I think that because I had in mind that, you know, she, these are real women and these are real humans and these are real survivors who have gone through something so unthinkable. I really wanted her journey to be authentic to her. And if they're feeling that shame and that sense of complicity and that confusion, and they're trying to unravel like where, you know, how involved they were, what they did to make it happen, it's just how they felt. I don't think they're going to like set fire to their the abuser's car and it might make a better scene. But I was like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't think that's within the realms of reality. And I don't think that's what Grace would do. And I don't think that's what most of these women would do. They're not gleefully seeking revenge. So I think it did and it didn't. Like I was much more aware of honoring and respecting the story of survivors which, you know, I think ultimately is why people who have connected with the book have connected with it because it feels so authentic and it is authentic. But I think a lot of agents and editors wanted more fireworks, I'd say, but yeah. Yeah, and I love that you did that. I did that, you know, as well as my second book. I had a character who was sexually abused by someone in a position of power and he also made her feel great shame over it her whole entire life. She 
punished herself, wouldn't allow herself relationships with other people. And I speak to a ton of book clubs and so many of them go, why didn't she have a moment in court where she could face him? And, and I feel like this is what we want from our entertainment. But I, like you said, that would not have been authentic to the experience of so many South African survivors of sexual assault, like so few of them ever, ever see justice. And yeah. so um, I wanted to be more real and, and authentic in terms of honoring the real experience of women. And just because it's a quieter reckoning doesn't mean it isn't a reckoning. You don't need to have cars exploding for it to mean something to that particular character. So I agree with you. Exactly. Yeah. It could just be recognizing that you weren't to blame or something. You know, it can just be a very, yeah, a very private Quiet reckoning, exactly. Absolutely. So when you did go out the second time on submission, could you take us through that? Like, how did you decide which agents you were going to approach? Did you have rejections along the way? How, How did that look for you compared to the first time you went out on submission? The second time I had a few agents that had said, oh, please send me anything you do right um, again. Like it's just, you know, the timing wasn't right or whatever. So I felt a bit more confident because I had a few that I could kind of email directly and it wasn't a blank query, although actually none of them ended up being my agent. But (laughs) I, I know you're told to submit to three or four at a time. I went a bit wider than that. And I went, because I went UK and US, because the book is based in the US. uh, But I'm obviously English and the protagonist is, you know, English living in LA. So yeah, I went across the two countries and it still took months before I had a response from an agent in the UK. And then I met with her and two others and then made a choice because she gave me some excellent editorial notes. So I was like, okay, this is exactly what I need. Yeah. So I went with her and then she got me my US agent and then he went out on submission in the US and I got my deal with Berkeley, a two book deal. But yeah, it's still, um, there's still the sort of rejection at every stage, which is quite, it's quite interesting. But there's a certain point, I don't know if other people found this, but even when I was querying agents, just any response is just some sort of like, you feel like you're alive and you're not a ghost and you're doing it. You know, it's just when you don't hear anything, it's just slightly soul destroying. But as you get more and more responses and like, if there's, you know, a bit of praise in them, I am, um, I remember like across the two books when I was submitting, I'd uh, highlight, I'd just cut and paste any nice thing they said and put it in a in a Word document so I could just read it and just remind myself that I was clearly doing something right. Yeah, it is, you do have to be quite resilient. And I think it was a real, I mean, it's definitely character building. And I wouldn't have said that I could handle it before, but you sort of just figure it out. And if you really want to do it, then, then you just have to, yeah, be prepared for that. Because, uh, yeah, at every stage, like even when you're, published you can get the most amazing publicity but you miss out on a list or you miss out on an award or you miss out so it's just all about reframing everything I think that's so important yeah yeah and you know I remember when I was going out and querying and I would either get these standard rejections or just 
crickets, complete silence. Yes. I'd be like, how difficult is it to send a damn line as to yeah. like, I, I rejected it for this reason or whatever, because you're just so desperate for anything that you can use. Yeah. And now, you know, having Carly and Cece on the show as agents, I see how many queries they get and I can, you know, I see the other side of it and how difficult it is for them to try and give each person individual feedback. But, you know, I was like you, if any agent said, oh, I liked it except for this, then I would be like, okay, that's something I can use. I can work on that. Yeah. And, and yeah, getting that praise was, was absolutely amazing. Cause then you're like, okay, I can hang on to this as I weep into my cereal <laughs> every morning that I'm, that I'm just getting an hour this. a day of weeping. <laughs> just, just. Um, no, I think that segment is so amazing. And I would have honestly loved it when I was querying because it's so helpful and yeah, just their notes are just, yeah, incredible. Thank you. So when, so then when you went out, when your agent went out on submission, mm -hmm. how long did it take to land somebody who wanted to buy it? Were there a lot of rejections along the way or did that process happen quite quickly? There were definitely rejections along the way from there, but my editor, Jen at Berkeley, I think she just really loved it from the start. And we, we spoke on the phone and she gave me some notes and I just really connected with them and we just, I just loved her. And so I felt quite confident throughout just having spoken to her and hearing her enthusiasm for it. So I think it was maybe six weeks from, from submission, which is, or maybe a month, but it's, yeah, it's quite, it's a long time to wait, but I think I had that call quite early. So I felt like quietly confident just knowing that she was there so then when I got the offer it was snowing it was like the deadline and because of the time difference I think it was an hour past the deadline and I was like oh well obviously no one's offered like I was just sat in my house by myself like okay I just need to do that okay it's fine I can do this again one week to look your way and then we're going again and then I got the the email and the calls and it was honestly just one of the best moments of my life it was snowing it was very magical and I like that I was alone. I think that was, everyone was out. And I think it was just like quite nice for me because I'm like, I like to process things myself before I share them. And just having that time to just be like, oh my God, was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. And, and what you, what you've said now twice is so important is this allowing yourself to feel that rejection to feel yeah. devastated to feel mm. all of those things and I'm the same you know so I'll feel something hugely and I'll feel it for like a week where I mm. don't want to get out of bed and I'm just like this is devastating and then after a week I'm like okay that's enough wallowing get the hell out of bed and start on the next thing and that yeah. is the thing you know is not exactly. giving up is is feeling it definitely feeling it and then saying okay now I'm gonna do it again and I'm gonna do it better this time you know Yes, exactly. You just use it all. Use it so all. I want to talk a bit about subplots in your novel, because this is something that emerging writers struggle with. They sort of struggle with secondary characters. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're anything like me, their secondary characters become more fun and exciting than their main yes. characters <laughs> and try and claw their way onto the you know center stage. Um, or they just struggle with any kind of secondary characterization and subplots. So I want to ask you about Grace's sister, Esme. She was a lovely character and what she was going through as well is different to what Grace was going through, but 
similar again, because it comes down to these double standards for men and women, how women are targeted in these ways, you know, the misogynism, et cetera, et cetera. So was she always a part of the story or was it that once you managed to get Grace's story down, you thought, okay, I can bring in this subplot. How did that evolve? So it's actually very interesting. Um, that was actually the note that my English agent gave me initially. So I had two girls living in the kind of compound next to Grace, and they sort of played the part of Esme. And it was the same story, but it sort of lacked that emotional connection. There was no sister character. And that I had them in there from the start. I had that story. I had the the double standards, the the sexting, the the bullying subplot, just because I wanted, I knew I needed to show Grace's redemption and humanity somehow. And I figured it wasn't necessarily, you know, you're never going to be completely healed by the end of the book with her parents. Those wounds were so deep or with her partner, you know, it's hopeful for with all of them by the end. No spoilers, but but I knew that I wanted to see her doing something that was selfless because she can be quite self-absorbed and I wanted her to be sort of not knowing how to do it, but putting herself out there. And so the the agent who, yeah, my English agent, she had read it and she really liked the subplot, but was like, I think it would just give a lot of, you know, more emotional heft if it was a sister character. And that straight away, because I have a sister, we're two years apart, was so close. And I was like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. Like it just clicked. Um, yeah, so writing Esme in was one of my favorite edits, I think. And it was it was surprisingly easy. It was like she'd been sort of waiting to be written in, you know, like everything, all the scenes at home, the reason Grace left Anaheim, everything just clicked into place. So I'm so grateful. And now I can't imagine the book without her. She's my... She's one of my favorite characters too. Yeah. And when you get that kind of feedback and you just go, oh man, why didn't I think of that? Then you know, because so often you get feedback and you're like, "Mm, I don't know, I don't know. And then you'll hear something and you'll be like, oh yes. And like you say, it's like the character was just kind of waiting off stage for their moment and then, and then come on. One last question is in terms of your research, because the one thing that struck me so much about Grace is this thing of how these child actors become completely, I don't want to say useless, but they are kind of useless in life because they have people surrounding them who do everything for them, who are constantly telling them kind of how amazing they are. They they don't have to learn how to boil a kettle. They don't have to learn how to make toast or, you know, basic things that other kids grow up in the world doing. You know, there's moments where Grace is completely flummoxed by like a kettle, or if somebody does something for her, she's like, am I supposed to pay them now? You know, because this is what she's used to doing. How did you access that part of her character? Is this just something that you absorb by being in LA or is it that you had to do a lot of research on child actors? Um, I did do quite a lot of research on child actors. I listened to a lot of podcast interviews. Um, I spoke to a few people in the industry and sort of once I'd written it more to fact check, but yeah, my family and I used to stay. We used to go to Los Angeles for the summers. And occasionally, if we were there for a long time, we'd stay at this this very strange apartment complex called Oakwood, which is where a lot of kids from around the US would stay with normally one parent. 
um, while they were there for, you know, pilot season or they were trying to make it as actors. And I remember even being struck as a child, just how strange the dynamic was and how their parents, it often didn't seem like they were their parents, you know, like they were sort of there to serve the child in a way that wasn't something I was familiar with. And yeah, it was just very odd. And it got me thinking that if that if that child got, you know, became successful and the family became dependent on, on them financially, then I guess what that would do for the power dynamics within a family and like whether you could instill all the values that you wanted in your child if you weren't around them all the time and if they were the ones supporting you. I did a lot of research, but it was also, yeah, it was just that I think those strange summers really stuck with me because the kids would all give you their signed headshot at the end of the summer as a <laughs> as a parting gift. My sister and I were like, what? What the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> we might have a Polaroid. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, but I did recently watch a, a documentary that former child star whose name has just slipped my mind made that that was amazing on it as well and yeah I just think it's such an odd odd dynamic yeah just going back to secondary characters again um Abel's wife um was Mm. also amazing amazing uh secondary character so you Mm. did a really phenomenal job there proving you. you know to our listeners that you don't spend all of your time on your main characters you certainly spend time on those secondary characters as well because that supporting cast brings in all other kinds of subplots sub themes that really allow you to explore all kinds of things that you wouldn't be able to explore without them Ella, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us and and to share all of this. For the listeners, get the comeback. It is a page turner. It's so, so riveting. But besides that, Ella's social commentary is just amazing. She slips in these little nuggets of insight in terms of human nature that I was just busy highlighting these things because that's the kind of thing I absolutely um, adore in a novel, besides the fact that the plot, of course, has to be wonderful. And coming back again to what Ella said, that you know, there were agents who wanted her to change her plot to make it more commercial in terms of how books should be. And, you know, we we discuss this in the podcast all the time with our agents because they are trying to come up with ways to make it easier to sell your books. So they're going to suggest things and we're going to suggest things to make the story perhaps more riveting or engaging. But it's always your story and it's always your vision that it comes down to. And just like Ella did, you can say that is not what I'm trying to do with the story. Uh, And, and, you know, then you find another agent or someone else who's going to support that vision that you have. So it's very important to stay true to your characters and, and your story. Ella, thank you again. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, 
and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. 
If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.